0: Now my name is Hilary Bambrick, and it's my privilege to chair tonight's discussion. I'm professor of public health and head of QUT's School of Public Health and Social Work, and I've been working in the area of climate change for 20 years. Um, in particular, how it impacts on our health and well-being, um, and how we can better prepare ourselves um, for our cl- for our climate changed future, and how to build resilience in our communities. So in those 20 years, I've had moments of optimism such as when Kevin Rudd finally signed Australia up to the Kyoto Protocol, and when we reached international agreement at Paris to try to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, and when Tesla promised to build a massive solar power plant in South Australia in 100 days, or it's free. Um, Over this time, I've also had moments of deep despair, such as when politicians insist that each new, unprecedented weather event is nothing out of the ordinary or how we somehow seem to be about to build the world's biggest coal mine here in Queensland, or knowing that right now, in August 2017, the world has less than three years left to turn the climate ship around, if we want to have a fair chance of avoiding irreversible and catastrophic climate change. Okay, so just to give you a sense of where we are at the moment, 1976 was the last year in which global temperatures measured below the 20th century average. So for the last 41 years, we've been above average. We used to talk about climate change impacts as something off in the future, decades away. Um, We're now in that future, a little sooner than we anticipated. It's increasingly apparent that we're already experiencing the effects of human-induced climate change, here and now. And as India, Nepal, Bangladesh and even Texas has found out recently, this just this week, it's not pretty. So to give you a, put this in perspective about where climate change is. So if we're going to do something to limit dangerous climate change, we need to take urgent action now. I've just put my lifespan on here and this is um, after a colleague of mine, Leslie Hughes, who's done a similar thing for herself. So this is where I am on this graph. This is where my kids are. And if I have grandkids, this is where they'll be. So it's something to put it in a human-scale perspective. This is an urgent issue. It's in the here and now, and we need to do something about it. Yesterday, on my afternoon run, I came across this. (laughs) Not very cheery. Um, And it's the kind of dire warning that um, can make us think the problem is too big to fix. And this is not a view that I subscribe to. But we really are at the point when we have to do something and it has to be big and we have to do it now. Which brings me to why we're here tonight, which is to find out from our (coughs) panel how do we change the world? So each of our speakers here tonight is is in their own way um, deeply engaged with questioning how we do things um, and in bringing about change. Change in our laws, change in our thinking, change in our values, change in the public debate. And I'm really looking forward to an inspiring discussion. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Now, just a (coughs) short note on how this evening's going to run. Um, I'll give a brief introduction to each speaker uh, before they start, and then they'll have a chance to present their initial thoughts on tonight's topic. So they'll each have five minutes um, to, to really get across their main message. And I'll let them know when they need to start winding up (laughs) one way or another. And then after after each member of the panel has spoken, they'll then have another chance to respond um, to what the others have said. So they'll have a short um, chance to to respond to that. And then we'll have questions from the audience. Okay, so let's get started. Um, First up, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Will Steffen. Um, Will is a climate scientist and long-term public advocate for climate action. He's interested in sustainability and earth system science, the science of climate change, approaches to climate change adaptation in, health, in land systems, and the history and future of the relationship between humans and the rest of nature. Will has held so many esteemed appointments, there's no time to mention them all, um, but here's a small selection. So he's currently Professor Emeritus at ANU and a councillor with the Climate Council, and previously, he's been a science advisor to the Australian Government Department of Climate Change and commissioner with the Climate Commission, and chair of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. So, Will, how do we change the world?
1: Okay, um, my quick answer is we already have. Or I should say... We
0: go home. <laughs> we, no,
1: no, we, we already have changed the Earth. The world and the Earth are not the same thing, of course. And we already have changed the Earth, or I should really say the Earth system. Uh, and the reason uh, that we know that is that the timekeepers of planet Earth, the geologists, are now um, considering a new geological epoch called the Anthropocene, the the era of humans or, or mankind, starting about the mid-20th century. Well, why would they say that, and why would we say mid-20th century? Well, if you look at the climate, and you just look at the rates of change compared to the long-term changes of planet Earth, CO2 is going up now at a rate that is 10 to 100 times faster than any time we've seen for millions of years, naturally. Um, If we look at the acidification of the ocean, which occurs when CO2 dissolves in that, it's a faster rate than anything we've seen for 300 million years. That's an evolutionary time frame. And if we look at temperature itself, temperature is now rising at a rate 170 times faster than the background rate over the last 7,000 years, the time during which we've developed civilization. But there's more to the Earth system than climate. If we look at the biosphere, we're now seeing extinction rates that are estimated to be 10 to 100 times faster than background rates. Um, Many families of organisms are experiencing extinctions, uh, about one to 2% of species. That's headed toward uh, toward a great extinction event. Uh, and it would be the sixth great extinction event in Earth history. But to give you one little factoid about, uh, to give you an idea of how much humans have changed the biosphere, if you look at the terrestrial biosphere, the land surface, and look at everything that has a backbone, mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians, and you look at the entire weight or mass of all those creatures put together, 33 percent of that is us, humans. Another 65 percent or so Our domesticates, cattle, pigs, dogs, what have you. 3% are the totality of all wild creatures left on Earth. So we dominate the biosphere even more than we dominate the the climate. So we are definitely in the Anthropocene. And I think the the best way to put it was done by a colleague of mine, Johan Rockström at the Stockholm Resilience Center. He said for virtually all of our existence on the planet up until the mid 20th century, We were a small world on a big planet. Now we're a big world on a small planet. And to paraphrase Naomi Klein, the Canadian author, this changes everything. So the point I just want to make with those few (coughs) factoids is that if you want to change the world, that is us, humans, our societies, our institutions, and so on, you really must understand what the nature of the challenge is. And that's, I think, the role of us physical scientists, Earth system scientists, is to put what's happening to planet Earth, what the challenge that that Hillary put up so nicely, the time frame, the magnitude, and so on, that has to be put in a long-term perspective. When you do that, you see that we have no choice. We need to actually make our world commensurate with the limits of the Earth system. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Will. Thanks very much. Okay, we'll move on to Michelle. So Dr Michelle Maloney is a lawyer and the co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, working towards earth-centred law, governance and ethics. Michelle has 25 years experience managing climate change, sustainability and social justice projects here and abroad, um, including community development and sustainability, working with First Nations people. She's an innovative environmental advocate who's written widely on environmental protection, in particular protection that would come through recognising the inherent rights of nature. So I'm hoping, Michelle, you'll be able to tell us some more about that.
2: Yeah, thank you. And thank you very much for the um, the privilege of being here amongst my esteemed colleagues. Um, I guess I would like to respond to Will's comments and perhaps suggest that for everything we're losing, there is so much more we still have and it's still worth fighting for. Um, Someone once called me an earth optimist and um, I think ultimately I'm clinging to the idea, I actually call myself an apocaloptimist because I I see the future as something that has become bleak because of our actions but um, just waking up every day and looking out the window and seeing trees and flowers is a privilege, Um, seeing the animals and the plants that we have co-evolved with and that Cormac Cullinan from Wild Law called our evolutionary companions, there is still so much that is beautiful and wonderful that we have to really fight hard for. And I think now is not a time for negativity. Now is a time to be as optimistic as possible because that helps us get out of bed and keep fighting. So from the work that we do within the Australian Earth Laws Alliance or AILA, what we're very interested in is, I guess, um, a reawakening within Western industrialized culture of a lot of knowledge and systems that we've lost. Uh, an, an understanding of the sacred, and understanding of the precious, uh, um, the amazing life that is around us. But I'm not just a happy tree-hugging hippie. Um, I'm a lawyer with a PhD, and I get and I understand the challenge before us. So what is my response to how do we save the world? I think in a very simple way, because I only have a few minutes, um, <laughs> I would suggest two core things that I am most interested in. The first is whether you want to call it metaphysical, spiritual, or cultural an absolute shift in the way that we think about our place in the world and our interrelationship with every other thing, life form, biota on the planet. Industrial society has emerged, for better or for worse, into a space that sees itself um, in an anthropocentric or human-centered way, separate from the natural world, above it, better than it. Our legal system reflects this, the way we treat plants, animals and land through our property law, administrative law, Um, Anyone who asks me knows I often refer to the English legal system as the remnants of a medieval feudal system, um, and we continue with those issues today. So to me, the very first change is actually realising and accepting what First Nations and other cultures already know, which is that we are interdependent and completely interconnected with the rest of the Earth system, which is what modern science calls it, but with the Earth community. And in fact, as a lawyer and a governance nerd, someone who's really interested in how we look at understand and shift institutional structures um, the rules with which we make and create society Um, it is in fact that mental shift the acceptance of our interconnected part in this world that is the trigger for shifting the whole system because if you see yourself as just one mere organism amongst many that have co-evolved on this planet for billions of years it creates a humility and it creates limits upon the actions that we force onto the world around us. Now, that all sounds very groovy, uh, a little bit uh, altruistic, um, but that's the first core element. Without that culture shift, the kinds of things that Thomas Berry and Deep Ecology are talking to the Western society about, we can't have a broader shift. We can change as many laws as we want, but the pro-growth, commodity-based view of nature will continue. Now, the second thing to save the world is a rapid a shift from fossil fuels and large-scale extractivism. It's as simple as that. The scale of human activity is too big for our humble, beautiful planet. planet. Um, And some of the work that AILA does with the New Economy Network is really about thinking, number one, how do we change the underlying culture? How does that then impact on the kinds of retrofitting we need to very quickly do to our institutions, our governance structures, Um, and then the ultimate challenge right now is shifting away from fossil fuel use, moving towards not just a reliance on renewable energy, but really, really understanding that we in in industrial society ask too much of our earth. We have to reduce demand. We have to look at everything that's boring and clunky about energy efficiency, different ways of building, different ways of structuring, um, a much more humble way of life. Um, Folks call it redefining the good life, not shifting back to a cave, Um, but in fact redefining what it is that makes us human and reveling in the excitement of daily life, breathing in and out is pretty cool. It really is. I've come through chemo and I learnt to know that if you can wake up each day, breathe in and out and eat without pain, it's a damn good day. And I think if everyone could be reminded of that, as well as look at our institutional structures, individual action's great, but we have to join up with others. So I think I'm out of time, but in a nutshell, change our cultural worldview totally understand we're part of an interconnected community of life, and it's awesome. We know right now that there's no other planet nearby that we can escape to, and why would we want to? Because this planet has wombats. (laughs) Um, Second, we have to change our institutional structures, these underpinning rules and the whole kit and caboodle. And then I think the third thing is just focus on reducing our demand and try to shift from fossil fuels. That's me. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Next up, we have Richard Dennis. So, Dr. Richard Dennis grew up in Newcastle, but that's okay.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's chief economist. Sometimes
3: I never
0: grew up. <laughs> chief economist and formerly the executive director at the Australia Institute, which is Australia's leading progressive think tank. He's a long-time mover and shaker in Australia's political circles. Richard's previous roles include chief of staff to Democrat Senator Natasha Stott Despoja and Green Senator Bob Brown. Richard has authored a number of books on Australia's social and economic landscape and is well known and fearless in commentating on Australian politics. A key talent of Richard's is running the numbers on government policy and then telling the government how they don't add up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Richard's a regular contributor to The Monthly and the Australian Financial Review, among others. And most recently, Richard's been working internationally with world leaders on a campaign to end coal mining. So, Richard. How do
3: we change the world? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Hillary. Um, We're going to change the world because the hard thing would be to keep it the same. Look back 50 years. It's all changed. Look forward 50 years. It's all going to change. We're just haggling over which direction and what pace that change will take place. But because we don't admit that, we've uh, been boxed into a corner, not by accident, by, by clever evil, greedy people, um, choosing my words carefully, um, (laughs) to make us fear the kind of change that we want, yet accept the kind of change we don't want. So we all know that we we couldn't possibly end coal mining because people would lose their jobs. And keeping people in jobs is the number... 147th thing on the Australian political priority list. When Campbell Newman was elected, what did he promise to do? Sack tens of thousands of public servants. When Tony Abbott was elected, what did he promise to do? Sack tens of thousands of public servants. And I grew up in Newcastle and I wanted to work in the coal mines when I tried to leave school at 15. And this is true and they wouldn't have me, so I'm still... Carrying that, right? (laughs) And one of the reasons they wouldn't have me is that between 1985, when I was in year 10, and 1995, the New South Wales coal industry sacked half of its workforce. Anyone know why the New South Wales coal industry sacked half of its workforce between 1985 and 1995? Because the technology allowed them to. Let me just choose my words carefully again. It is complete crap to suggest that causing climate change is a good way to create jobs this is meaningless when we've introduced free trade agreements and people have lost their jobs we've been told to suck that up when we've privatized assets we've been told people lose their jobs and we've been told to suck that up when public when politicians aspire to be premier or prime minister by cutting public services and tens of thousands of people lose their jobs we've been told that's the price of progress but you want renewable energy Well, why do you hate workers so much? The world is going to change the hard thing would be keeping it the same but the people who profit from the status quo are fighting tooth and nail to keep parts of it the same while at the same time rolling out robot trucks and robot trains to ensure that they can employ fewer people while causing climate change. And somehow we're losing this fight. (laughs) Like seriously, it's a bit hard to conceive of how after 20 years we've failed to even convince people that a world that's reducing greenhouse gas emissions needs fewer coal mines, not more. And to be clear, your Premier and the Australian Prime Minister think that the way to tackle climate change is through the construction of new coal mines. I'm not making that up. These are their words. New coal mines will lead to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the same way that new whaling ships would lead to a reduction in whaling and new landmine production would lead to a reduction in the amount of landmines. If that made no sense, that is my point. But in Australian public debate and in global public debate, To suggest that part, and only part, of reducing greenhouse gas emissions would be to cease the construction of new coal mines is a radical proposition. It's a radical proposition. So to conclude, the world is going to change. The economy is going to change. Anyone remember photo development labs? (laughs) That's right. And then there was that evil job-destroying digital camera came along. Remember the transition package that we had and the just transition for the photo development lab workers? (laughs) Neither do I. (laughs) Anyone here book a hotel online recently? Is that because you hate
2: receptionists?
3: (laughs) Let me be clear, hundreds of thousands of people will lose their jobs in the coming years through no fault of tackling climate change absolutely unrelated, irrelevant, and no one cares. Yet when we demand global or national action to do something that we collectively want, we're made to feel singularly responsible for unemployment in this country. The world will change, technology will change, culture will change, everything will change, the climate will change. The question is whether we as a group Are going to get organised enough to change it in the way we'd like to see. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you Richard. So our final panellist tonight is Anne Mann. So Anne is an acclaimed (coughs) author and journalist who writes thoughtfully, passionately and provocatively about things that matter. Anne doesn't shy away from tough subject matter, so, for example, having sat through hearings in the recent Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse and writing a detailed account of it in May's edition of The Monthly, which I commend to all of you, if <coughs> you for the challenge. Anne's 2014 book, which I happen to have here, uh, The Life of I, explores the rise of narcissism in Western society. Quoting from Anne's book, extreme narcissistic personality disorder is characterised by lack of empathy grandiosity, an obsession with personal appearance, willingness to exploit others, sense of entitlement, a belief in the importance and superiority of self over others, a determination to use any means for self-aggrandizement, and a destructive rage when thwarted. Narcissists (laughs) are preoccupied with how they're seen in the eyes of others, and they perform before a fantasised, admiring audience." Well, Anne, it's hard to imagine that you could have been any more prescient about the recent turn of international politics. <laughs> <laughs> and now there seems to be so much material for a sequel. <laughs>
1: yes,
4: I'm working on Donald Trump as we speak. <laughs> um, yes, look, I, I actually think, how do you change the world? Well, the first thing is to find a way of naming the problem, is to identify the problem. And so, <clears throat> over the last um, 20 years, really, and seeing the trends increase um, over that time, uh, I have been tracking neoliberalism or tracking the kinds of economic changes um, that were brought in um, in the 80s onwards and looking at, um, I guess my focus is on the, uh, the cultural logic of that; those economic changes, the kinds of um, social relationships, the kinds of lives people live uh, under neoliberalism. But I realised that um, when I was working on this book on narcissism that another way of putting some of the uh, really unpleasant changes um, that have happened is that we are a more narcissistic society um, as evidenced by the list that um, Hilary read out. So much of our society is around the promotion of the self, the advancement of the self, is about the self. It's about a form of selfish individualism which behaves as if there is no consequence for others of action. It's the opposite of the ideal that I agree with that Michelle put forward of interdependence. It's an ideal of the person who is independent, who's self-sufficient, who can look after themselves economically, who's definitely not on welfare, um, who is uh, a kind of success in the world in all the um, uh, outer forms. You know the way they look, the way they, um, what sort of CV they have, what kind of profile. Um, but it's a it's a world where. The, um, the kind of wealth that we aspire to, the kind of um, affluence that is held up as the ideal, the high consumption um, that is held up as the ideal, actually has been shown by social psychology, um, a lot of very um, detailed empirical work, to actually result in what one um, researcher calls the asshole effect, <laughs> <laughs> which essentially is that the richer the meaner, Um, both as a society and an individual, so that um, uh, individuals who um, become wealthy are found to, for example, be far more likely to do everything from ploughing through an intersection without stopping. Um, They're they're more likely to do that than someone in a clapped-out old bomb. Um, They are more likely to mow down a pedestrian or um, not give way to pedestrians, three times more likely. They are more likely if even primed in a psych laboratory, to feel wealthier, to um, make uh, bigger circles for themselves if asked to represent themselves and others. and Other people are little tiny circles and they are big um, circles, whereas people who um, are uh, less affluent or primed to to feel less (coughs) affluent um, are more likely to draw themselves as equal size. They are more likely to steal, they are more likely in a laboratory setting, from um, even from children. They are more likely to, in real life, be meaner um, in giving to charity. Uh, so, um, there are uh, lots of different ways that this behaviour has been tracked across different settings, in real life, in the laboratory, um, and the key element seems to be a sense of entitlement. And that coming from a sense of superiority. So, one thing neoliberalism has clearly delivered is inequality in spades. So, if we have a more unequal society, then we're also going to have, especially among the elites, a greater sense of entitlement. I mean, when Joe Hockey, for example, said um, that uh, infamous line about lifters and leaners, he didn't mean that the fossil fuel industry were leaners even though they are actually heavily subsidised. He didn't mean that big business are leaners, even though in many instances they are um, heavily subsidised. He didn't mean um, any of those people are leaners. He meant um, taking something really almost directly lifted, I think, from Ann Rand, the American um, rather wacko philosopher, Um, who wrote a series of pretty crazy books um, that then became extremely popular. And one of her ideas was the producers and the parasites. So dividing the world into um, those who are lifters, that is people who are um, uh, wealthy or in the workforce or in some way um, economically self-sufficient, is being contrasted to um, those who are parasitic, seen as parasitic. And so there's a a kind of cruelty in the idea that people, um, there are so many people who are excluded from this ideal um, of the um, the self-sufficient economic individual who um, enters contracts in the market and is able to um, live a life without, and this is a um, a core point of mine, um, without responsibility for care. And most of the problems from climate change to um, uh, if we look across the society things like um, mental health if you look at the way um, people with caring for someone with a disability so so many different areas um, are a subset of the larger question of um, the absence of care what is one thing the narcissist and a narcissistic society has trouble with care it's the antidote it's the opposite Um, it's antithetical to a solipsistic, um, self-oriented, narcissistic worldview. And even we found by, um, again, really detailed social psychological work, um, that uh, people who are higher in narcissism are far less likely to care and to be careful about sharing the commons, so that they are much more likely to um, be uh, accepting of a very heavy carbon footprint Um, and they are much more oriented to materialistic and um, extrinsic values. So, my point would be that this neoliberal society has created a monumental care deficit across a range of um, areas um, in the society. Um, We have a new kind of family we are trying to achieve, which is with both men and women in the workforce, but we are not really willing to properly fund it or alternatively Reorganise workplaces to take account of the fact that um, uh, women have traditionally had responsibility for care and that care um, never goes away. But if we ask what care is, what is it? Well, I would say one of the most important elements is a kind of higher attentiveness, an attentiveness to what people need or what the planet needs. Um, it's a capacity for seeing. Um, for looking and sort of peering into um, what is needed, and then responding to those needs, and with climate change, we need to do it so urgently, and that's um, exactly what we're uh, what we're not doing. But we need a fundamental um, value shift, and that turned into uh, very clear practices, and the pra- it has to be away from the ideal of. Inter- Independence towards interdependence. It has to be away from exploitativism, if I may invent a word, um, extractivism, um, and away from the <coughs> ideal of uh, um, the idea of um, because I'm worth it, because we are worth it. Towards a sense of responsibility um, for others and the planet.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Now, each of the panellists now has a few minutes sort of right of reply. So I'd like you, starting with you, Will, and we'll work along the line, to sort of pick up on something that you've just heard and, and run with it for a few minutes and give us your response.
1: Yeah, well, first off, um, being, being a natural scientist, we study all sorts of effects, like the greenhouse effect, obviously. So I've learned a new one tonight, thanks, Pam, which is the asshole effect. <laughs> which I'm, so, I'm certainly going to remember because I think it's a very important one. But, but, but I think what's come through all, all of my, my three colleagues here I think is, is, is really interesting and important. And, and that is that there is a single root cause, I think, for all the things that we're talking about, whether it's, it's how we organize our societies, how we care for people, how we operate with our fellow humans, whether it's how we relate to the rest of the natural world, as, as you were saying, Michelle. And, and of course, um, I think Richard, in his very, uh, uh, I think very poignant way, talked about um, how the, the political side of things actually skews all of this. But it's all the same root thing, and that's that we have, um, we've developed an economic system which has now captured basically the political system, which has forgotten who we are and, and uh, how we fit into the rest of the planet and with each other. And so uh, it, to me, this all this resonates really well. I, I'm a geeky scientist, so I tend to put it in a systems point of view. Uh, but the, the, the point I keep making to people is we somehow, have developed a society, an economic system, a political system that thinks we're somehow separate from the rest of the planet. And indeed, separate from some of our fellow humans, as Anne was saying. Uh, And that's the root cause of our problems, is is we we have to realize who we are, where we came from, where we evolved from, uh, and the fact that we are intensely social creatures, we do and should care for one another, and we should be rooted, embedded in the rest of the biosphere. I'll just conclude by saying, if you want to read A geeky but very powerful book that really puts all this together is a book called The Systems View of Life, which uh, by Capra and Luisi was published a couple of years ago. And It goes all the way through the the fundamental origin of life on earth, how the first cell actually could form from from the basic chemistry and physics, all the way up to what human consciousness really is and how interdependent we really are. Uh, using complex systems theory of, of our consciousness, our feelings for each other, for life, being an emergent property of the way we're wired. And the system we've set up is actually counter to the way we've, we've evolved, and I think that's the fundamental problem that we face. So that was my comment.
2: Thank you, Will. <clears throat> Thank you. And as a comment, I guess I don't have a lot to add to, to Will's lovely summary of the, I guess the, the way that all of our ideas have shared a similar view, but I guess I would just like to add that the future we want to have is is being built now. It's maybe occasionally a little quieter mm. than the mainstream, but if you turn off the TV and go to your local farmer's market, or if you uh, go to any kind of community-based event, or um, go for a, a walk in a national park and meet other folk, everybody is joined by a similar craving for a, a good life, um, a nice life. A civilized life, but I think what's exciting is certainly for me. I, I'm what 47. I've been working in environmental issues since I was about 16. The last 10 years have seen a, a remarkable shift in the bubbling up of good ideas. I think I have seen the kind of the dichotomy between environmental activism and social activism being merged. Um, the the New Economy Conference that we're kicking off tomorrow morning. We've got three days here at South Bank exploring, um, you know, not just what we should be doing but what's already happening and celebrating a phenomenal network of people around Australia and around the world um, of the good stuff. So I think the the good stuff's already being built. It has been for some time. But our job is to join it up, amplify it, support each other and shift the system. Um, Otherwise, we will end up with, as what Richard is saying, is the endless kind of rationalisation of why we can't have what we want and why we have to put up with stuff that we, we do have. The bigger issues for me, um, in addition to building community, is how we actually tackle these ideas of how we've bought into the narcissism, how neoliberalism, both through government policy and the, the, sort of the welfare state, the government control, the, the corporate control of our ideas, how we challenge the bigger power structures. Um, and To me, the only, the only image that ever comes to me when I think about these things is the first image is a, a giant fish chasing lots of little fish, and then the next image is all the little fish join together and make the shape of a big fish, and they turn around and chase the brill fish, and I, that's what I'm interested in is how we join up amazing people and, and the, the great stuff that's already happening and uh, beat down the, what did you call them, evil greedy bastards,
3: that
2: <laughs> it? or am I just paraphrasing now? <laughs> oh, that was close. <laughs> Thanks,
0: Michelle. Okay, Richard.
3: Um, look, I, I guess two big points, uh, firstly taking off from what Shel just said and what was said earlier. Um, uh, we, we're going to build a new economy and it will be built with the one we've got. Like every, every economy in recorded history was built by the one that came before it, you know, it, w- it was blacksmiths that pounded out the first car parts. Um, so the new economy will be built, uh, it will be built by what we have, again the question is how quickly. Uh, The question is, in what direction? It's not obvious that we'll win. It's not obvious or inevitable. We live in a democracy. Other people might be better organised or more passionate than us. And the second point relates to that, uh, and it's a point that came up in in nearly all the talks, I think, and that is that, actually, culture matters. Now, I'm an economist, so not usually your go-to guy on culture. Um, But uh, just a a self-promotion, sorry, Anne, Um, uh, my, my next book will be out in six weeks time and it's called Curing Affluenza and it basically says these are cultural problems this is not economics the largest irrigated crop in the US is lawn lawn that's okay it's not right or wrong or good or bad but in terms of the surface area of the United States of America the most land is dedicated to a cultural bizarre preference for a manicured lawn culture drives economics it's not the price of lawn seed that makes people have that much lawn it's a culture where having a lawn makes you a good citizen a good neighbor no this whole, it's, it's a thing that is a new idea. It pretty much fired up post-World War II. It's not common in most countries. It's pretty common in Australia. But I think economists and non-economists alike have ignored the way culture shapes our economy. We're told we have to have... Uh, that that spending money to put solar panels on your roof is an inefficient uh, use of scarce resources. It doesn't necessarily deliver least-cost abatement. And there'll be plenty of people in the room that'll say, yes, it does, Richard, you know, if you cost it all the right way. And to them, I'd say, who cares? You want to put a solar panel on your roof? Put a solar panel on your roof. We don't talk about least-cost transport. Any, does anyone here know someone who owns a car that costs more than my Hyundai gets? Culturally, they like wasting money on cars. And having a $60,000, $150,000 car parked out the front of their house is an important part of our economy. Well, you want to slap a big solar panel on your roof, why is that different? And it's not, it's just that our culture says impressing people through the medium of German car is a sensible thing to do, and impressing people through the medium of solar panels, weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that's a cultural question. That has absolutely nothing to do with economics. Those cultural preferences have economic consequences but we don't plant lawns because the seeds are cheap and we don't drive expensive cars because they're cheap. We drive them because they're expensive. So if culturally we think that renovating the solar panel on your roof is more important than renovating your kitchen, we'd tackle climate change like that. But culturally that's not what we want to do. Thanks
4: Richard. Yes, look, I I actually began uh, my book on narcissism with sort of back to front in that uh, the last chapter is on climate change. But in my thinking, I actually began there and the the thought was um, one that Ulrich Beck put forward, which was, why aren't we storming the Bastille, the the equivalent of, why isn't there a revolution going on? Why isn't there um, an incredible amount of um, uh, anger and pressure um, for change. And it's, as Richard says, it is culture. Um, There there is something about our society, which is, um, I always say that, um, you know, Karl Marx had this idea that religion was the opium of the people, whereas I think it's the opium of the people is renovation, (laughs) not not religion, you know, because there's something about the way um, consumerism has got a hold of people and uh, Richard's right, I mean, there's, it's, um, it is simply a matter of culture that we value one thing or another, and it can be changed. Even neoliberalism, which seems so rock solid um, in terms of its um, uh, possession of both major parties, for example, or um, in the US, um, so, or in the UK, it, it, it's, it's not, um, that it, it is not impossible that that can change, um, and um, it was actually one of the founding neoliberals, um, Hayek, who said, um, nothing happens except thinking makes it so. Um, as a, uh, so there, there is something about um, not really uh, facing the fact that we can change things and that um, people don't have to live in the way that they currently are. <clears throat> the only thing I would say is that um, I think a neoliberal society... Um, Naomi Klein has her um, wonderful book called This Changes Everything, Um, but she talks about bad timing. And I think that bad timing of neoliberalism arising at just the moment um, when we really had to get serious about climate change uh, is enormously important, but it it affects all sorts of other uh, areas as well, that um, transformation. But just prior to neoliberalism, liberalism, which was a kind of you know party in the wings waiting to come forth. There was um, social democracy. There was also all sorts of problems, um, <coughs> stagflation and so on. And then we were um, undergoing, seemingly overnight, a huge shift towards um, allegedly free markets. <laughs> um, I say allegedly because they're not really free at all. Um, and we were um, undergoing a huge value shift which is what constitutes neoliberalism. So if that was a rapid and major shift um, where suddenly greed was good and suddenly um, to uh, have inequality was good and to suddenly selfish individualism was good and so on, then we can have um, an equally sudden shift. Um, And there is only... Um, really culture which is holding us back and only by the naming of what the problem is and um, thinking about how we might change that um, can we move away from the sort of entrenched patterns uh, which we have at the moment where uh, every budget is about an alleged um, uh, deficit crisis, Um, every issue is um, uh, disciplined by, um, you know, a... a, um, uh, an attitude towards government spending, which means that there's never enough uh, money in the in the kitty, that uh, taxation is regarded as something semi-illegitimate um, amongst ordinary people, that there are constant appeals to working people um, who are already doing it tough or doing it hard when they're actually they're very affluent and so on. So, all of that can change, but it is a matter of people recognising what's happening and saying no. If, for example, you have a full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, I'm sorry to tell you there's not much that seems to be able to be done, um, even with a skilled therapist. However, (laughs) if you are simply higher on narcissism, then there are lots of things where you can pull back from that solipsistic state where you think only the self matters. And you can be called to attention, um, and people can actually shift um, towards greater generosity, altruism, um, and to to care. Great,
0: right. thank you, Anne. So now's the chance. <laughs> now's the chance for, for you, the audience, to um, ask some questions. And I, we do have some microphones down the front, which will be um, distributed to those of you who raise your hands. I. There's one already, well done. Okay, Um, I do ask that you keep your questions as brief as possible to give the the speakers a chance to respond. We have about 15 minutes in which we can have this um, interaction, so thank you.
2: Thank
5: you, David Hood. Um, Thank you for an incredibly depressing picture of the future. It really worries me that it's enormous and Michelle, I really think that those people that you're so excited about, they're wonderful, but they're only a tiny, tiny percent. Growing, but still tiny, I think. You talk about cultural change. The only way we will get anything happening is if we can get the people. And if you haven't uh, heard of it or seen it, you might have heard of Al Gore's um, inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. I think Al's got it wrong. It's not Truth to Power. I gave up talking to politicians years and years ago. It's Truth to Society. And we won't get politicians to act unless society calls loudly, clearly and in mobilised numbers to force them to act. So how do we change the narrative? How do we start getting this across to the people? Every time I sort of talk about climate emergency, I get kicked back and say, oh, you can't use emergency. Don't talk about warlike footings and things like that. That just frightens the people. Well, I think we've got to start telling the truth get the people to understand that we are headed for a crisis unless we act. How do we change the narrative? What advice can you give us in changing the narrative so that we can get the truth to people?
2: Can I just jump in because I think there's one thing we need to recognise and that is that neoliberalism did not take hold of societies because the people willed it to to be so. Neoliberalism took hold because a whole bunch of corporations knew it was in their best interests and the interaction between government power and corporate power made it so. So challenging it right now isn't about truth. It's not about people waking up and knowing. that Most people who are thinking about some of this stuff, they kind of get it. I mean, the surveys that CSIRO and a whole bunch of other folks have done about climate change and every other thing, people get it. We have to challenge the power structures and yes, we have to bring people together, but just sort of randomly getting people together doesn't work in Australia. We're too apathetic. We prefer to sit on the lounge and watch TV. Um, and I would just suggest that I agree with you, David. I think you know, we absolutely have this crisis. We should be speaking of it in terms of an emergency, but leadership can sometimes really matter. Neoliberalism did not take place because of some community-based revolution. It took place because they got in, they changed the laws, they changed the structures, they changed the institutions. They, they stacked their politicians as people who are consultants to the you know, industrial military complex. We have to do the same. We have to change the system. So to me, building the new economy and this small percentage of people, it's more than a small percentage of people. Everyone I talk to gets excited when they think about joining up with others and doing something appropriate and good. Not just something fluffy, something s- systemic and institutional. And we're looking at everything from the food systems, you know, to the energy systems, to how cooperatives work, how commons work, how how the organizations that we build focused on for-profit, not-for-profit. We need to get a little bit cleverer. We need to join forces, because there is an awful lot of good stuff out there. But then we need to push back to the systemic and the power and just challenge that shit, because it's not going to happen without that. That's my view. Very strongly (laughs) held, obviously. (laughs) And did I mention wombats?
0: (laughs)
6: Okay. Next question. Uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like the panel's uh, advice on this, please. Um, it's about economic growth. Uh, Will you were going to hint at something fundamental, and I thought you were going to mention economic growth. Economic growth is what drives our society, our businesses, along, and it's also what's consuming the world. Uh, Economic growth keeps our houses increasing in value, not going down in value. Now, if we go to degrowth, and I know the problem exactly, what you're talking about here. To be able to paint a positive picture of degrowth, we have to do something other than say we're against growth. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, degrowth could mean deflation. Deflation means assets go Values go down. Look at Japan, for example. So I'd really like to know from the panel, what's the future if it's not going to be economic growth and how can we paint a positive picture of that future that people will accept?
3: Richard? Uh, Look, um, I'll I'll talk a bit about this at the conference tomorrow, but the short answer is um, I I want lots and lots and lots of growth. Lots of growth. Uh, We're not going to change the world without enormous amounts of growth. I want to see growth in renewable energy generation. I want to see growth in the energy efficiency service sector. I want to see growth in expenditure in health and education. I don't want degrowth at all, I want enormous amounts of growth, I want to see enormous decline in the size of the coal industry, I want to see enormous decline in the size of the oil industry, I want to see enormous decline in the size of the weapons industry. Why on earth would anyone ask me what I want GDP to be? I don't care, don't you get it? You're obsessed with GDP, you are, (laughs) with your growth. People. <laughs> right, I don't want growth to be 4%. I don't want it to be zero. I don't want it to be to minus one. I don't care what GDP is. I want the bits of my society that I want to grow to grow. And I want the bits of my society that I want to decline to decline. Who cares what the net effect is? Why would you target the net size? So I understand the premise of the question. But, you know, yeah, there's a reason people hate the sound of degrowth. It sounds terrible. (laughs) You're never going to win a sales pitch selling a product that bad. And you're not going to tackle climate change without causing enormous economic growth. But if it's growth in stuff that we buy and chuck out the next day, that's a disaster. If it's growth in defence spending that never helps anybody, that's a disaster. And if it's growth in expenditure on public transport that displaces huge amounts of private transport in the next 50 years, that's fantastic. So I hate to say it, there's so many progressives that simultaneously say, GDP's crazy, it's mad the way the writer obsessed about it. I'm obsessed with making it not grow. Put it out of your mind. <laughs> right? Figure out what you want to grow and demand it. Figure out what you want to decline and demand it. It'll net itself out. Who cares?
4: Yes, I'd just add to that um, that uh, aged care has nudged out um, retail um, in terms of the size, its size in the economy. And um, that care is actually a low-carbon activity. Absolutely. Um, and it's one of the fastest-growing areas in the economy. And um, it's also um, uh, unpaid care work. Is a huge, vital part, or I call it the shadow care economy. But it keeps um, the visible economy going. Um, and a, as a, a lot of um, functions go into the um, into the market, um, as in you know you have a nursing home or you have a childcare centre, um, then it's a part. Just as Richard is saying, is that that's a a really important growth area, um, as well as it also always being important, of course, that we maintain our uh, families and communities as such that people always have the capacity to give care in an unpaid capacity um, in their own family. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, care is, um, I think it was Naomi Klein who pointed out, is a low-carbon activity and is um, that's one of the things she focused on in her LEAP manifesto and for good reason. Um, I would just say that I actually think we, we seem to be roughly agreed on various um, principles and on need for cultural change. Uh, But I think um, the old left used to have an idea which was the transitional position. Um, and What it meant was that uh, you need to put up a policy, an idea, and it's not actually the ultimate, but it gets people thinking and debating and pulls the society, the discourse across. So it changes it Um, and in that way I think we should have a debate about universal basic income because um, that would actually bring out of the woodwork all the um, uh, hidden contemptuous attitudes towards unpaid care work. Um, It would draw out how for example one third of older women live in poverty because they've spent most of their life doing care work and if their partnership or marriage breaks up they're um, in deep trouble um, there is a, um, a way in which we need to have a, a really centered debate partly about climate change which um, is uh, it just ignores the warnings about not saying it's an emergency it is an emergency you know, Stop treating people like children, as if they're kind of babies. Um, it's another thing, by the way, a narcissist likes is to be treated like a baby, um, <laughs> to be infantilised and never have to face reality um, and to never say they're sorry. So there, there's a way in which we need specific ideas for policies, which even if a lot of <coughs> shit happens at the same time as there is a debate, you really thrash things out and people have to reassess their position of, for example, shaming uh, single parents um, because they, even though they're working, are completely um, impoverished and um, some of them are homeless and are um, dependent on government assistance. So, we need something to kind of explode the logic which says that that's okay or explodes the logic which says um, that older women, it's fine that they're in poverty because after all, you know, do we really expect much for for women. Um, we need to explode the idea that we don't do anything about climate change. So you need quite um, interventionist, radical um, suggestions that get everybody thinking and all the shock jocks shrieking and uh, you know, you, you need something that's like a hand grenade into the current um, very comfortable neoliberal discourse which basically has an ideology um, which is apologetics um, which is confirmed in everyday life and which is basically false.
0: Thanks Anne. So we're getting near the end we've got um, I think we've got time for three more very quick questions so I've already sorted those three people out I'm sorry so if you have other questions after that there'll be some time for some mingling um, after the event so we'll move to one down the front.
7: Um, Hello my name's Elizabeth Handley. One of the observations I just wanted to make is that we seem quite content to spend absolutely billions of dollars on terrorism, which we have lost so far fewer lives in Australia than we have on probably shark attacks. Um, The second observation I would make is that climate change is a more immediate problem. Why aren't we spending the money on that? And also, it is totally a win-win situation. If we do something on climate change and it's there, we've made the necessary changes. If we do something on climate change and it's not there, we've done something that actually moves our society forward. Um, Would you like to comment?
3: Just very quickly, I think a lot of confusion flows from a false premise and that is that conservative governments uh, care about the budget. Um, There's no evidence to support this. No, I'm not making this up. There is no evidence to support it. You might remember that we once decided that you wouldn't build submarines in Adelaide because the Conservative government didn't trust them to build a canoe. The (laughs) estimate at the time was that it would cost $25 billion to buy the 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. We are now proposing to spend $50 billion, twice as much, to build them in Adelaide. To be clear, there is no evidence to suggest that conservative governments in Australia or around the world are obsessed with reducing government spending or reducing uh, public debt. What they're obsessed with is not spending money on people they hate so they can spend more money on people they like. And that's okay, this is democracy, but we keep falling for this trick. Okay, so all of the evidence ever collected suggests locking people up and throwing away the key is an ineffective uh, approach to criminal justice. What happens in the lead up to every state election? Politicians of both political stripes promise to do something that all the evidence says doesn't work. Yet we then all get surprised, okay? There's no evidence that they've ever listened to evidence when it's politically popular (coughs) and in their interest to do something. The same is true for preventative health. If your 18-year-old said, I can't afford to put oil in the car, Dad, but I'm about to drive to Sydney, you might think you're an idiot, son. Okay, but if a government says, well, we have to cut the budget deficit because (coughs) government spending is bad, so we're not going to spend money on preventative health, well, you're an idiot, mate. But they're not idiots. They don't care. Could you just get that into your head? They don't care. They want to spend money on submarines, so they do. They don't want to spend money on public health, so they don't. It is not any more complicated than that.
0: Okay, question down
8: the back. <coughs> Hi, Neil Davidson. <coughs> what a wonderful panel. It looks a bit like a joke, doesn't it? A world pessimist, an apocaly- apocalyptimist, a transformative economist, and not a narcissist walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> But no, the serious thing here is about the values shift. Um, You've all spoken about the need for values shift and yet you're representing multiple sets of values out the front there right now. So recognising that there's multiple sets of values in this room but we're all aiming for the same thing which is a a world that actually cares and has compassion, attentiveness to people, planet and what the planet needs and a consciousness which is an emergent property of our our, our evolution. Bucky Fuller said "You you actually have to build a better model not try and fight the existing system. So where are we going to build the physical, geographical exemplars that show that we've actually got a new set of values? What is the mechanism for bringing us together at scale in a geographic place, not a fragmented and socially complex city? I would suggest a rural community, and show there's a better model. And I know that there's transformative change happening through uh, the shift from um, electricity grid to uh, to renewables. I know there's opportunities to work with different economies. I know there are faith communities and eco-spiritual movements that have been doing the care and compassion stuff for centuries. How do we bring together that collective? And I know that the Nina conference and the eco-spiritual conference later in the year are both aiming to do some of those things. How do we ground that in real physical exemplars that disprove all the critics? Because that's a shift in values.
0: Okay, which one of you would like to take that one up? Thanks, Michelle.
2: Um, I actually believe that systems change doesn't happen neatly or in one place. Um, I think it's happening already. I mean, I wheel that out a lot, but I think the future we want is being built right now. We just need to speed it up um, and work a little strong, more strongly together. Um, where do the exemplars? They exist everywhere. Um, and again, I don't want to be the shiny optimist, but there are quite remarkable people working on food projects Um, intentional communities to a point but I actually find that there's a lot of projects out there that are exploring better land care you know we work with folks who are doing amazing restorative actions to to replenish forests and to bring animals back and there's examples of um, organic shifts between different kinds of growing um, people trying to challenge transport so I actually think it's all happening and I mean some folks in this room would know one of the reasons I'm committed to being involved in this new economy network is I actually think that if we can find each other like literally find each other and join up with each other we've got a greater chance of showing off all of these good things and inspiring other people to do all of these good things and not just support each other at the individual and organizational level but we will and not just to amplify what we're doing and connect them but we will but to actually then show that these other systems already in place show that the, 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 the negative stuff we don't want, you know, the stuff we want to push into decline, and it is exactly that, in fact, my slide tomorrow has that quote from Buckminster Fuller. That, that to me, was what the new economy side of it is about. We resist and stop the things we don't want, like the Adani coal mine, um, but we continue to build the good stuff because that is one of the best ways to use human excitement, innovation, creativity. You know, we don't want to just sit around whinging and stopping things. We want to build something nice. It's actually what got us in this problem in the first place if you look at how European society has expanded upon the earth, but surely we can nurture our magical powers for good. Um, So that's my answer, which is I think it's already happening, it's happening all across Australia, but we need to bring them all together and inspire others to come with us and have some fun, not to be doom and gloom endlessly, you know. We're still breathing in and out here. We still have a chance, you know, at something. Thanks, I know you're not. <laughs> um,
3: just just very quickly, I'm from, and so is Will, from the People's Republic of the ACT uh, where, well, you might not know this and this is a problem. We, we have a 100% renewable energy target for 2020, for 2020. Uh, We just had an election uh, about a massive investment in public transport, and it happened. The election before that was a radical shift in our tax system away from stamp duty towards a progressive land tax base, and we've got the only openly gay chief minister. So I don't think Canberra's perfect, but 100% renewable energy, massive investment in public transport, and taking on land tax, and a government that keeps winning elections. It's not beyond the wit of man to do this stuff. But, and and this is uh, is the point Michelle just made, it is not enough for cities and communities to feel smugly good about what they've done when you're going to be silent when someone else is going to ruin the planet. So all those people and all those councils with your 100% renewable energy stuff, fantastic. If you're not publicly, if your mayor is not publicly speaking out saying, and none of that counts for anything if the Adani mine gets built, then we're going to lose yeah, we have to do good stuff, but doing good stuff is not enough. We need to do good stuff and we need to call out bad stuff. We didn't wait for the whaling countries to demand an in for whaling. Are we going to wait for coal communities to demand an end to coal?
0: Okay, thanks. Um, we've got one final question up the back, very quick one.
7: Yeah, yeah, really quick. Thank you for a very inspiring um, panel discussion. I just wanted to um, ask a question about the fact, given that many of us in the room are academics and situated within higher education, um, the role that you see for higher education to be part of the change agenda and implications for research that we undertake and curriculum.
0: Well, I think this one's for you.
1: Oh, gee, yeah, that's that's a good one. Some, sometimes I think, that... I hope no one hears from me and you. Sometimes I think that that traditional academic institutions are some of the last people to actually get it. And and part of the problem there, there are many problems, but the one problem I really focus on is most academic institutions are still too focused on disciplinary, stove-piped research. They don't connect the dots. Try to get systems thinking into a university like the ANU. Virtually impossible. Try to get people working across disciplines. All all the, the culture is against you all the funding structures are against you. Um, and if, if you do manage to get a bit of money, the first thing you'll find for doing integrative research, synthetic research, is that all sorts of, of, of hawks are gonna try to come in and grab bits of that money. I'm not optimistic about, about traditional academic institutions. I think we need a, a big deal, a good deal of disruption. If you look around the world, where's the greatest research coming out of? Things like the Potsdam Institute, the Stockholm Resilience Center. They keep away from universities. And they got really creative, dynamic people in them. So I think we, we need a, a real shake-up of, of the Australian higher education system. It's a 20th century creature, and we're, it's, it's out of its depth in dealing with the problems we've got. Would
8: you lead us in a systems design laboratory? <laughs>
1: I'd get a younger person than me <laughs> to, to do it, to be quite honest. But, <laughs> but, but look, there, there, there are a lot of young people out there who are trying, they're coming up, they actually get it and they're really fighting hard to change, but it's academic institutions, some of the most conservative institutions in our society, unfortunately.